So it's been a, a month or a little more. Uh, we've been all last year in the chronological. So I shortened the title. Last year it was the chronological journeys through the Gospels, and now it's the chronological Gospels. I'm just kind of zeroing in, make it simple. And that's something I learned years ago. I don't always listen, but uh, it just kind of came out naturally this week. Um, easier to type out too. Chronological Gospels. So we have spent all of 2022 looking at uh, the Word of God through the Gospels, kind of meshing the Gospels together. We're still in really the year of popularity with Jesus, but we're going to soon begin to see that year of popularity wane. But we're still in that time of popularity with Jesus, and he's on the move today as we pick up again looking at what I titled Half-Hearted, Faint-Hearted, and Unlikely Disciples, as we'll be looking from the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke today. And we're going to learn about three different types, actually more than just three, but three different types that I named of followers of Jesus Christ, looking at the half-hearted disciples in Luke 9, 57 through 62, faint-hearted disciples, Matthew 8, 23 and through 27, and an unlikely disciple in Mark 5, 1 through 20. And so it is just amazing how we're going to be kind of putting together the Gospels and and it's not always easy to do, but uh, it just so happens that in each of these accounts coming from Luke, from Matthew, from Mark, that uh, they're talking about people following Jesus Christ. And in the, these three accounts, we find different types of followers, the half-hearted, the faint-hearted, and the unlikely. So let's begin with the half-hearted disciples in Luke 9. 57 through 62. Matthew also wrote about this. It's found in Matthew 8, 18 through 22. But for our purpose this morning, Luke 9, 57 through 62. So Matthew places this account of the two, and only spoke of two. Here in Luke, he'll tell of three. But Matthew placed this account of two half-hearted disciples after Jesus healed the centurion soldier's servant he had uh, raised up. She had, hadn't died, but she was really sick. Peter's mother-in-law and health returned to her. She immediately got up and began to serve those who were in her house. And then after the Sabbath was over, Matthew told us that all who were sick, all who were demon-possessed came to Jesus that night and he healed them all. Well, Luke doesn't go into the location, uh, the events, really just talking about the first, the rejection of the Samaritans. And all we do know is that Jesus is on the move. He's on the road. He's going to the Sea of Galilee. He's going to take a boat ride with his disciples. He's going to go to the country of the Gadarenes. And while he's on the move, there are, in Luke's account, three men that interact with Jesus. The first, we find came to Jesus and said, I will follow you anywhere. And then 57 through 58, now it happened. As they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And though we understand that the road that Jesus was traveling on was actually leading to his death, Hear this statement that was made by Jesus. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It really tells us that Jesus had no home to call his own, that he lived a difficult life when he was serving there in those three years of ministry before his death at his first coming. Jesus was not going to set up the kingdom on the earth at that time. But he came to redeem the earth from the fall and the curse of the fall. But he had a difficult road. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet 
for your sakes he became poor, and that through his poverty you might become rich. His richness referring to his deity coming from heaven's glory to dwell on the earth, to serve us, becoming as us, both fully God and fully man, but offering his life on the cross that through his poverty, his humility there on the cross, that we might become rich. And there have been many since the time of Christ who have said to the Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And truly many have followed. And yet some have even died for their faith. But often when the road gets difficult, many Christ followers turn back from their faith. Over the last few years, and I just saw some more articles on this this morning, didn't get a chance to get into them, but there has been uh, a falling away here in the United States in the church. There are less people attending churches right now than they were just two years ago or two and a half years ago before the last couple of years of all the stuff that's gone on in our country and throughout the world. But when from my perspective, and I've been around just for a little while these days, that we have and are living in some of the most difficult times that I've seen in my lifetime. Instead of people drawing closer to the Lord, people are drawing further away from the Lord. There are many right now who have said, Lord, I will follow you. And they're no longer walking in the ways of the Lord, no longer attending church, no longer gathering in the fellowship with the body of Christ, many have turned away. To another, Jesus said in 59 and 60 of Luke 9, follow me. So now Jesus is giving the invitation. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now this, from our perspective, sounds pretty harsh. But we're not looking at it through the historical lens of the time of Christ and what this man meant by saying, let me go first, bury my dad. He was not saying that, Lord, I surely will follow you. My dad just died. Can I go to the funeral? He was not saying that. What this man was saying is, look, I don't have my inheritance yet. My dad's still living. And when the old man kicks the bucket and I receive the inheritance, when I'm set for life, then I'll follow you. Let me first go bury the dead. Let me wait until dad dies and I get my inheritance. Then I'll have time to follow you. Now, I've heard this in a number of different ways here in this country. Here's a few. I want to get myself established first in business. I want to get married. I want to have a family. Then I'll have time for Jesus. Let me get my life in order and then I'll have time for Jesus. And yet the Bible tells us, Jesus said in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added unto you. The order that the Lord gives us to seek me first and then all the other things I will add to you. And by the way, if you end up sometimes establishing a business apart from Christ. I mean, you can get into business and it may not do any harm. Maybe it will. But especially getting married apart from Christ, having a family apart from Christ, um, better to do Christ first. And then all these things. You might be heaping on trouble. I was just thinking of the business and a friend of mine who went into business with a non-believer and I ended up working for these two individuals and uh, was friends with them both once I began working with them and I, I was with them for six years. So we had a pretty long relationship and it's where I cut my teeth as a laborer and then became a brick mason and I got my first chance as being a, a foreman at 23 years old. It was all at this company but the Christian versus the non-believer in business, it wasn't working very well. And uh, the Christian should have known better. And he stepped out of it because of the difficulty of that relationship. So 
this man says to Jesus, let me first get my affairs in order and then I'll follow you. And Jesus is saying, follow me now. You go preach the gospel. That's not what I asked you to do. I called you to follow me. I called you to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. God will call us during different seasons of our life. Sometimes he calls us, well, before the death of a loved one. And other times it might come after the death of a loved one. For me, it was after my dad passed away just a few short months after that, that the Lord used my dad's passing to deepen my walk with the Lord and actually used that to call me into ministry. The important thing for us to remember is not the timing of when Jesus calls, but when he calls, our willingness to answer the call. We shouldn't say to the, here's the problem. If you're saying, Lord, so the Lord says to you, and you come back and say, Lord, but then he's not truly Lord. If he's Lord, then you say, yes, Lord. If he's just your boss or the attitude of some spiritual influence that you maybe can better direct your life, then he's not really Lord. So the important thing is not when he calls, but when he calls our willingness to follow in his call. So another then said in 961 through 62 in the Gospel of Luke, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now I've seen in my years, I've seen many have put their hand to the plow of faith and have turned back. For the plowman to keep a, a straight furrow, he has to keep his eyes fixed upon his work. So I've been around this church since 1994 as a bass player, a youth teacher, and pastor since 1999. But I've been around for a while, and through the years, every spring, we'll talk about mowing the lawn. We have 10 acres, and don't mow all 10 acres. We have some woods out there, parking lot and a building. But uh, it's always there. So I've seen a number of people mow the lawn around here. And uh, some people just go without looking where they're going. And you can see it. And I have to kind of help them. Maybe they've never sat on a riding lawnmower before and they need to learn to, first of all, you can go very fast on a riding lawnmower, but fast is not always good if you can't control the speed but also if you can't steer straight. And so if you have that, and I've learned that, you know, when I'm, you know, it's just one of the things we do. It's just, you're not looking straight down, you're looking ahead. You're keeping in my own house. When I do this uh, in our yard, I look all the way when I cut the line between me and my neighbor's house, no fence there on the one side. When I begin that path, I know my starting point because I drove a stake there years ago and I know where the target is at the other end and I always look at the other end when I start mowing I never look down I just start walking and I end up usually cutting a straight path no one looking back you can't be looking around you get distracted you get put off and here I'll follow you but let me first go I got some other things I want to take care of first and Jesus said if you want to take care of other things first, then you're not fit for the kingdom of God. His call is immediate. And he's not saying there's not time for life in any of these things, but really talking, us, talking to us about the priority that we should set for our lives. In each of these cases, their commitment to Jesus was half-hearted as they tried to set their eyes on the things of Christ while simultaneously setting their eyes on the things of the world or without turning away from the things of the world. It's just another way of saying that someone was double-minded, which means that their hearts are really far away from Jesus. In Isaiah 29:13, therefore the Lord said, inasmuch as these people, they draw near with their mouths, they honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts from me. Their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. 
And may we be a people whose hearts are not set on the easy road or seeking earthly reward, but those who have set their hands firmly on the plow of faith, who have fixed our eyes firmly upon Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Ecclesiastes 9.10 Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. If the Lord has given you a task to do, then do that task with all your might. And Jesus is seeking wholehearted disciples to follow him. But he had some wholehearted disciples following him. For our next point, we're going to be in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8. He had 12 wholehearted disciples following him at that time. But we find at the same time, they became faint-hearted disciples. This is found also in Mark 4, 35 through 41, and Luke 9, 57 through 62. But we're looking at Matthew 8, verses 23 through 27. So our second point, Jesus is found in the back of a boat sleeping while his disciples are being inundated by a great storm. The storm was so great that it caused these, we know that there were at least six able fishermen that were accustomed to the Sea of Galilee and the trickery of the Sea of Galilee on that boat. But they cried out to the Lord, save us. We are perishing. And though Jesus did awake, he rebuked the storm. He calmed the sea. He first rebuked his faint-hearted disciples. Matthew tells it this way in Matthew 8, verse 23 through 25. Now when he got in the boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. And then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Now, it is assumed that the 12 are with Jesus at this time, even though Matthew does not record his becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ until after this event. Matthew and Mark places the account after Jesus called the 12. So we can just assume the 12 are there. Maybe one was missing. But the important for us thing for us to note is that they were with Jesus. They followed him in the boat. In fact, one of the gospels said, Jesus said, let's go to the other side. That's important to remember. He said, come with me. We have a destination. So they're following Jesus to the destination. While they were in route, there was a great storm that came upon the Sea of Galilee. So if you know anything about Israel and the Sea of Galilee, it's not a sea at all. It is a rather large lake, roughly 33 miles in circumference, 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. It's got a, a depth of about 140 feet, and it sits 685 feet below sea level. And it makes it the lowest freshwater lake on the earth. The Jordan River runs into the Sea of Galilee on the north side and runs out of it on the south side, runs down to the Dead Sea where it dies, where everything dies in the Dead Sea right now. So these great storms described in the gospel, they can uh, result from the temperature changes. I already mentioned that it's the lowest freshwater lake on the earth, 685 feet, but it's surrounded by mountainous regions, some reaching up to 2,000 feet. And the difference of that topo topography, uh, the temperature, the pressure changes that can cause sudden storms to come upon that sea can make it very difficult and dangerous. Here in the United States, Lake Erie, is only 200 feet deep. It's referred to as the shallowest, shallowest of the Great Lakes, um, though it's much larger than the Sea of Galilee. It is estimated that some 1,400 to 8,000 ships' boats have went down on Lake Erie, though they've only confirmed about 270. But it can become um, a very dangerous place, very similar to what takes place there in the Galilee. The storm was great. The waves were nearly covering the boat. The disciples whom 
knew how to handle the lake because six of them at least we know were fishermen. This was their job, but the situation brought them into a near-death situation and they knew to whom they should call. They called out to Jesus. My question for you, to whom do you call when you are surrounded by the storms of this life? Not in my notes, but just thinking about it several years ago, Lily had transient global amnesia. And so temporary short-term loss of memory. Um, There was a phone call from Kevin. It was the day after Christmas. So our son-in-law called. Lily asked who was on the phone. And by her questions, I could tell that things were not clicking in her brain at that time. I started asking more questions. She knew that she had grandchildren. She didn't know the age of her grandchildren. Um, I knew something was going on. And I paused momentarily, and this was my quick prayer. I said, Lord Jesus, I don't know what's going on with Jesus. I don't know what's going on with Lily but I know that we can handle it if you go with us. Amen. And then I got busy to find out what was happening with Lily and got her to the hospital. Just so happens that the doctor that she needed to see happened to be on call in the hospital that day. And uh, this doctor, transient global amnesia, he had said, I only usually see these cases after the fact. Someone has gone through it, and now they're okay again, but I've never seen it actually happening. He got to see it hap- happening uh, with Lily, so I'm sure he was excited about that. <laughs> it wasn't a big deal for our day, but <laughs> um, but that was my prayer. It was just a pause. It's, Lord, something's going on. I need your help. I need it now. And then I knew I had to take steps to help Lily. So the psalmist talks about being on the sea, talks about sailors on the sea in Psalm 107, 27 through 29, saying they reel to and fro. They stagger like drunken men at their wits end. They cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distress. He calms the storm and the waves are still. And that's what we see. But before Jesus calms the storm for his disciples, these are the guys who are walking with him. These are the 12. He rebuked them first in verse 26 and 27, saying, Why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? And he arose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? So this was amazing, even for the 12. Think about this. The 12, they'd already seen him countlessly heal the sick. They had already seen him um, cast out demons. They'd already seen him in the city of Nain raise the dead. And yet they're amazed that he can calm the wind and the sea, that he can command the wind and calm the sea. It caused them to say, who can this be? That for them, it was a deepening of their faith. They had saw a lot of miracles. And I don't know how the disciples at that point were always explaining everything that they had seen. But there on the Sea of Galilee, they saw something that they could not even fathom. Yeah, he raised the dead, but he calmed the sea. That's kind of amazing to me. We would think he calmed the sea, but he raised the dead. That one is bigger than the other. But it was just expanding the ability of Christ before their eyes that they were learning that Jesus, you can do anything. It's like, yeah, I know I'm I'm God, by the way. (laughs) You're going to come to believe that soon. But they were fearful. They were fearful because of the sudden great storm that arose at there on the sea. They were fearful because they had exhausted all their physical know-how and their might, but mostly they were fearful because they had not yet learned to place their trust in Jesus. Isaiah 41, 9 and 10 says, 
To whom have I taken from the ends of the earth, called from the furthest regions, and said, You are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So they had little faith. At this time, the disciples had heard many, as I said, they'd heard his sermons. They'd seen him heal the sick, cast out demons, even raise the dead. And he would again raise the dead uh, three times in the New Testament. We'll read of that. So they've seen a lot. They've heard a lot. Jesus testified in John 5:36, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father had sent me. And amid the great storm, their faith, though, became small. According to Mark, the storm came upon them while they were following. I'd already mentioned this, but it's in Mark 4.35, where Jesus said to his disciples, let's cross over to the other side. He gave them a plan. They were walking in obedience to the plan of Jesus Christ. And the storm came upon them. And like the disciples, we'll all go through storms in this life. Sometimes the storms will come in our disobedience. At other times, it will come when we are walking in obedience. But nonetheless, the storms still come. Jesus asked, why are you fearful, O you of little faith? But even though they were fearful and even though their faith was so little, even in this there is great hope because the word of God tells us, Matthew 17, 20, Jesus speaking, surely I say to you, if you have faith as much as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here and it will be moved. Nothing is impossible with God. So after Jesus' rebuke, rebuking them and then the winds and the sea and becoming calm, the disciples marveled. They're still marveling at Jesus. I had a brother yesterday, I believe, asking me about heaven, what I thought it would be like. And I said, I really don't think a lot about what heaven might be like, partly because scripture hasn't written a lot about what heaven's glory will look like. We get little glimpses in the Bible, but we can't really put a great picture together. And yet I believe it will kind of be like this situation where the disciples at the end of this, they marveled at Jesus. I think that's how it's going to be. We're just going to keep marveling and it'll never wear out. We'll keep being, oh yeah, he preached, he teaches, good. Raises the dead, heals the sick, uh, casts out demons, calms the sea. We'll just keep marveling, whatever the event might be. Psalm 56, three and four, whenever I'm afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear what can flesh do to me. For us to recognize even wholehearted followers of Christ at times can become fearful and of little faith. The important thing is to have that faith and to put it in Jesus Christ. So we end out in Mark's gospel in chapter five. They make it to Gennesaret. Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. I held this off because Mark goes into the greatest detail of the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Mark tells us most of the detail about this occasion. So I wanted to get it from Mark's gospel. Happens to be 20 verses, so it's a little longer. They're in the country of the Gadarenes, also known as Gennesaret. And Jesus here heals a man uh, possessed by many demons. And afterwards, this demon's asked to be cast into a herd of swine. The swine ran down this steep place, went into the sea. And the people seeing this of that region, they asked Jesus not to stay. They asked him to leave. Could you please leave? We don't want to see your miracles here. And yet Jesus still left them a witness of his great love and compassion. So they came to the other side, Mark 5, verses 1 through 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. 
And when they had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had in his dwelling, his dwelling was among the tombs. No one could bind him, not even with chains. And they had often, he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him. The shackles broken in pieces, neither anyone could tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains, in the tombs, crying out, cutting himself with stones. The country of the Gadarenes referred to the inhabitants of Gadaria. It was a region of Perea, part of the Roman providence there. And this is one of the things I learned while I was in Israel, something that my eyes had to see to kind of perceive. Uh, the great Roman I knew all along growing up as a kid in church and studying the word of God from a Sunday school to training union back in the day, uh, all the ministry that I had done all along, I knew that the Romans were over Israel at this time, that they were had to submit to the Romans during this time when Christ was born. I never realized the great Roman population. This was the Decapolis. I even knew of that word. Decapolis means 10, basically. And so these were 10 uh, communities. This is part of the Decapolis where the Gentiles lived, we might be able to say. And uh, seeing it with our own eyes, they're in the area of Bethshane. They had a Roman colony that had an amphitheater, bathhouses. It was divided into four quarters, the living area, the bathhouses, the amphitheater, the theater, the temple that they had. And this is the area where the bodies of King Saul and his sons were hung after they were killed and beheaded. And they took their bodies and hung them in that wall of Bethshane. This was that area. But by this time, the time of Christ, it was very Romanized. And it was a full-on Roman colony in this area. Now, the Gadarenes, where we're at, it's north of the area I was just telling you about, but it's part of that Decapolis, part of the east side of the Sea of Galilee, part of the east side of the Jordan River. There was a big Roman and Gentile and uh, Grecian influence in that area. But there was also a man who was possessed by a demon there, Mark and Luke only mentioned one. Matthew identifies two. It talks about two men. And perhaps Matthew and Luke only talk about one because of the greater interaction Jesus had with him. We're going to look at the account from Matthew here. So this man was possessed by demons, plural, many, just as Satan and many of the angels fell. In Revelation 12:9, we read of the great dragon cast out of heaven, the serpent of old called the devil, called Satan. And the Bible identifies this great serpent, but also says he was cast out to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And so from this, we have the demons, uh, angels and demons, but the demons were created by God as angels. They fell from that position now many are occupying this man, possessing this man. No one could tame him. It meant that no one could subdue him. It's a term in the Greek that refers to trying to subdue a wild animal. And so that's kind of how he's described. They tried to chain him and he would break free. It was as if he had superhuman strength. He not only brought harm to others, but he brought harm to himself. And Luke says he didn't even wear clothes and that he lived in the tombs. And Satan often drives his victims to keep company with those who are unclean to the Jews. The area of the tombs, that was unclean area. To touch the dead was unclean. And so it was an unclean area. It's not that they couldn't go to a, a graveyard or a graveside but um, care for the loved one's graves, any of that. But for the Jewish mind, they couldn't do it before they went to the temple to worship God or they would be unclean for a season. It's not that they sinned, that they would just be ceremonially unclean by touching the dead and they would have to wait seven days. There's a process. Satan often drives people into 
places that are unclean. They're defiled. They defile the people that get driven into those places and sometimes might even defile those of the church who associate with them there. But for this man being spiritually dead, and you know, when I read that this morning, I was going over my notes, I thought about Portland, Oregon, uh, Washington, L.A., um, Washington, D.C., all these street people suddenly we have Uh, Down in Chicago, I've seen him for years when I worked in the city as a brick mason. But the street people who they're destitute, they're living on. That's what Satan does. That's what Satan does. The Lord Jesus Christ, we'll discover, puts people clean and in their right mind again. But Satan does the street people. That's what he does. So the Lord warns us through through Peter and 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And as horrific as this man's life appeared to be, Jesus was able to set him free. The Bible reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, a favorite verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. 6 through 10, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him. He cried out with a loud voice saying, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. And so the demon now speaking through the man, what have I to do with you? Do not torment me. For Jesus said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked, what is your name? So Jesus is directly talking to the demon. And he answered, my name is Legion, for we are many. And so he begged him earnestly that he would not send him out of the country. So the demonically possessed man ran and worshiped Jesus. Proskuneo is the Greek word. It means to fall down prostrate, prostrate before another in reverence to fall down in worship. Could the man have had a moment of clarity? Possible, but we also see the demon is speaking through the man with Jesus. And the demons are the ones that recognize Jesus, call him the son of the most high God. We find this often in scripture that the demons recognize Jesus. James even records in James 2.19, saying, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. So the phrase, the most high God, only found 10 times in the Bible. Once it's associated with Melchizedek in Hebrews 7, 1. Twice it speaks of Israel's unbelief in Psalm 78, verses 35 and 36. Four times it relates to the king's of Babylon in Daniel chapters 3, 4, 5, 18, and 21. So four times the Most High God is found in the book of Daniel, and three times it's connected in the New Testament to demoniacs or demons, people possessed by demons in Matthew 5, 7, what we're reading now, Luke 8, 28, Acts 16, 17. So demons implore Jesus, wanting him to swear by his father, God, that they would not be tormented before the time. They're talking about the day of judgment. They know that a day of judgment is coming for them. And they're saying, don't torment us before the time. They also ask not to be sent out into the abyss. That would mean the judgment in Luke 8.31 or to their final punishment, but not to be sent out of the country where they were at. And that was kind of a interesting point for me to ponder. Maybe they knew the people there and it's like we love possessing people here in the area of the Gadarenes. Just don't let us go anywhere else. So the day of judgment is coming. Our only way of escape though is through faith in Jesus Christ. He asked their name They said it was legion for we are many growing up in church. They always gave an account of about 2000 looking historically with a Roman legion. It could speak about five to 6,000 men 
as forming a legion in the Roman army, which is what that word connects to. Uh, the 2,000, as we know, is they numbered the swine about 2,000. So that's where that number came from. We don't know the exact number, but clearly the demons had devastated this man's life. Demonic possession has often been reported by missionaries in third world country countries. It's been reported here in the United States. And sadly, I believe as we here in the United States continue to walk away from God, we'll see an uptick in this area as people's hearts are turning away from Jesus, the son of the most high God. So maybe they liked torturing the people of that region. I don't know. I've thought about this passage several times, why they wanted to stay in the region, why they went into the swine and asking the permission in 11 through 13, there was a large herd of swine feeding there near the mountains and all the demons begged him saying, send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave permission, then the unclean spirits, Notice they couldn't do it without the permission of the Lord. But after they received permission, the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There was about 2,000. The herd run violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So there's only one area on the Sea of Galilee where it's very steep. And it's on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, believed to know the area because of the the description of this account. Historically, the Decapolis had some 150,000 people, Gentile people living in that area. It could be that the swine were being raised by the Gentiles because we know that Gentiles like to eat swine. We like our bacon. Could be that they were unfaithful Jews raising it for the Gentiles, going against the Mosaic law. It was forbidden by the Mosaic law. You can read that in Leviticus 11, 7 and 8. Why would Jesus allow the demons to go into the swine if he knew that they were only going to destroy themselves? Perhaps it was a judgment against raising the swine in Israel. They were unclean animals and they were being raised in Israel. Maybe he knew the people of that region were already going to reject him, as we will see in a moment. In most places there in the Sea of Galilee, the shoreline gradually lifts up. But here, it's kind of across from Tiberias is on the, uh, get my direction straight, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. This is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. There's an area where the incline rises up really quick. And there's actually ruins there. We've seen the ruins there. It's believed to be the location of this event. When the people of the town came, 14 and 15, this is what's so cool. Those who had fed the swine, hey, they were out of work as soon as they ran down and drowned. It's like, how are we going to get paid now? I don't know if they would have slaughtered them and sold them as possessed pigs for the market. And I don't know if that would be a good selling point. So my humans, humor, sorry. But they went to the city and to the country. They told what they had seen, what had happened. Verse 15, they came to Jesus. They saw the one who had been demon-possessed had the legion sitting clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. They went out to share what they had seen, what had happened. And they saw this man a man that they could not control, that they tried to control. They could not tame. The word used there that he was as if a wild animal. They couldn't tame him. But now he is seated at the feet of Jesus in his right mind and fully clothed. In contrast, there have been many who had been under control of what we might be called a legion of Influence of alcohol, of drugs, the list could go on and on. But when Jesus gets hold of a person's mind, he can bring them back to their right mind, their right senses, and put them in that place where they're sitting at the feet of Jesus. They are fully clothed. 16 through 20, so those who saw it told them how it had happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine, 
And they, so the people who came to hear the report, they pleaded with Jesus, verse 17, to depart from their region. And when he got in the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged Jesus that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him. He said, go home. Go to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, he, the man who had been demon-possessed by legion, now is an evangelist for Jesus Christ, proclaiming the word of God in the Decapolis, 150,000 people recorded in history living in that area, all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. First of all, we have to deal with the sadness of those in that region. Jesus, we want no part of you. We have a lot of people in the United States today that want nothing to do with Jesus. They might see the miraculous works, the great things that God done, has done, is doing. It might be televised of someone dying on a football field on a Monday night, a whole team surrounding and praying for this individual. Public prayer, kneeling, get this, for the last five years in football, kneeling meant disrespect for the flag in the United States. But suddenly when they see their teammate fall cold on the ground, no one was ashamed to kneel. No one was ashamed to pray. In fact, one of the ESPN sports broadcaster prayed a pretty powerful prayer live on television. It was be- it's beautiful. It's beautiful to know that as woke and mixed up and CRT and all this garbage that we have seen in our nation and are seen in our nation, are seen in our state. Do you know that the House, not only are they trying to, it's in the Senate today dealing with it, but not only are they trying to pass a gun law, the House passed it. They also passed that uh, educating from kindergarten to fifth grade, okay, to teach sex to kindergartners. That passed in the House on Friday night here in Illinois. As messed up as this nation is, no one was complaining about people kneeling and praying for a dead man. And now that dead man is speaking. And they're going to have to deal with that in the power of prayer. But it's sad to see people rejecting the Lord. We see it a lot. To see a man who's clothed and found in his right mind. And the people of that region would rather have their swine than have Jesus. Now the man asked Jesus that he might be with him. And this is the exact phrase that was used when Jesus called his 12, the 12 apostles in Mark 3.14, that they might be with him. So the man used the very same phrase, Lord, that I might be with you. And the Lord said, no. Now some theorize that he was a Gentile. It wasn't his time for the Gentiles to follow Christ. But the area rejected Jesus, but Jesus, and here's my idea of this, he left them a witness. He left them a living, walking testimony of the power of Jesus Christ and what he can do. And I, no doubt over and over again, yeah, I was the guy who was naked and chained and running around the tombs, but that's not me now. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. And there's a lot of people who have similar testimonies of I was the gal, I was the guy. This was my life then, but that's not me now. Let me tell you what Jesus has done for me, how the Lord has had compassion on me. Lamentations 3, 23 through 24 says, Though the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassion fails not. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. And the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will hope in him. Though the people rejected Jesus of that region, the Lord left them a witness of his great love through this man. And Jesus has left us right where we are at. Maybe there's been those, and I, 
We have for five years received, and I haven't seen the email for a while. I paused for a while to think about it. We get prayer requests through our church. For over five years, we've had a prayer request from an individual often saying, Lord, let me die. Just take me home. I'm done. And other things being said. Almost always anonymous. A couple of times they slip the name in there. So I know the person and I know I can pray for this person now by name because they, they slipped a couple of times. Forgot they were anonymous. But you read in a thread like that over and over again, you kind of you get the feeling of the person, how they write and communicate. They're just like, I want to be gone. I'm done. And this man said, Lord, I want to go with you. And he's like, no, I need you to stay where you're at. Sometimes the Lord might say to us, you just need to stay put. I have work for you to do right where you're at right now. Tell them of the great things that the Lord has done for you and of his great compassion. And are we sharing with others the love of Jesus Christ, all that he has done for us? We've seen today half-hearted, faint-hearted, and an unlikely disciple. The half-hearted disciples, well, we learn that Jesus is seeking wholehearted disciples to follow him. Of the faint-hearted disciples, even faint-hearted disciples, we learn that they can become fearful and of little faith. But the unlikely likely disciples, in reality... The fact that Jesus saved any of us is a miracle in itself. Let me just say that we are all unlikely disciples of Jesus Christ. God, in his love for this world, made a way to redeem us from the curse that came upon this world, that we might walk in fellowship with God. We are unlikely followers of Christ, so may it be that we would share his love with others, share with our family, our friends, all who will listen, all that Christ has done for us. As the worship team comes, as we stand to close out in prayer, Pastor Kevin will be down front to pray with those who have a prayer need. I'll remind you also that there are prayer benches down here. If you want to come and just kneel and pray, please come and pray. Father, thank you for this message. Thank you, Lord, for the word you've given us through these three different Gospels, all talking about followers, all coming from a different perspective, some faint-hearted, some half-hearted, some unlikely. Lord, it kind of describes each of us at times. But we thank you, Lord, that you're willing to work in our lives. We pray that you would continue to work, work in this church as well. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. 